You know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, and uh, so, we're going to have a conversation today. I think last year, I, I generally teach the first Sunday of the month, and that includes December, and I think last year part of the title of my message was, I'm not Scrooge, honest, okay? Uh, and uh, while this is a little bit different uh, slant this year, um, I really do want to lift up and in a positive way talk about the birth of Christ. Uh, this season is as universally recognized as any, if not more, than any other season culturally. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff tacked on that can detract from its significance. Uh, the word Advent is understood by churchgoers today as that season, generally the first 24 days of December, I believe, that lead up to the birth of Christ. And uh, these traditions and festivities have been added on, used oftentimes for commercial interests, but, you know, a lot of them are really good, you know? The, uh, uh, the, uh, their, their memory building, their family times. And so please understand, nothing I say today should take away from those activities, the fellowship, you know, the celebrations, the good times together, uh, and of course, the food. You know, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, however, my hope today by this message is that no one will go away continuing to believe that the reason for the season is to merely experience a Hallmark movie in real life with its colors and smells and feelings. Because there are real consequences in opposite directions pinned to this event. So, we're going to start with the negative, and then we'll work toward the positive consequences that flow from the advent of baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, more broadly, the word advent is synonymous with arrival or appearance, like you, you've often heard of the advent of Gutenberg's printing press. So with that in mind, let's look at the larger significance of the arrival of the appearance of Jesus Christ the God-man, through the lens of one verse, probably the most well-known verse, uh, at least among Christians and many others. It used to be seen on signs at NFL games, and it is John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. However, first, because of the significance and the consequences of this particular verse, please pray with me briefly here that his word will reach somebody's heart today, that it not be in vain. Father God, thank you for this season. Thank you that we look forward to the birth of Christ and all the stuff that goes along with it that brings peace and goodwill toward men, yes, Lord, but help us to realize the significance of that coming. Lord God, we lift this up to you and pray that you would touch hearts today. 
that seek to know you. We praise you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, there is a problem that we see in this verse, and that is the problem of perishing. Um, and it's simply this, that every single person in the world will perish without the exercise of free will, the decision to genuinely trust the work of Christ for payment of our sins. Now, when each of us was born into the world, essentially we were on a path placed, placing us to perish apart from Christ. Now, please don't be distracted by questions about people in remote villages and the mentally incompetent and babies in and outside the womb uh, about how they may not hear the word or understand it or whatever. But remember that God is just. He will take care of those situations. What we're talking about today are the vast majority of people who have the understanding and the ability to make the decision. So, what do we mean by we're all perishing? Well, okay, uh, when we talk about this kind of thing in, the, in terms of the consequences for an unbeliever, many people will discount the conversation as fire and brimstone, okay? You've all heard that. Well, may I ask a question? If you are unknowingly headed for a cliff in your car, would you like to be warned? If you do not consider yourself to be a closed-minded person, well, please keep your mind open, even though you may hear some fire and brimstone. Please listen, consider, and if you haven't already, make a decision. First point we're going to make here is that perishing means that one is under the wrath of God. John 3 says, just a couple of verses later, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. This is not merely dying, but being judged by God. Later in verse 36, it says, this is the most sobering in all the Gospels. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. What this shows us is that if we are rescued from perishing, it is because of the love of God. The love of God has rescued us from the wrath of God. So to perish means to remain under the wrath of God because we will not trust Christ, and that is a terrifying place to be. Also, perishing means fiery torment. The book of Revelations uh, says this, that he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Revelation 14. Now, 
Some would suggest that perishing just means going out of existence, but actually it's not. It's staying in existence and suffering those fiery torments which will be experienced in hell. Unfortunately, some make light of this torment, putting horns and a pointy tail on the devil. Now, if God, heaven, and hell do not exist, then there's really no reason for this season at all. But there's also no purpose to life or our origin or our destiny. However, if they do exist, hell is no laughing matter. Perishing involves separation from the glory of God. Paul describes perishing in 2 Thessalonians 1. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So most of us here know that God has revealed himself in his creation for our constant awareness if we would only open our eyes and our hearts. And those that perish in hell will be cut off from all his work except the work of his wrath. Finally, perishing is everlasting and irreversible. In his teaching on the final judgment, dealing with how we treat the least of these in Matthew 25, Jesus segregates the sheep from the goats, the latter of which, he says, will end up in eternal punishment. In Luke 16, he says that there is a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell so that no one gets to try out one, definite, one destination and then select another if the first is not appealing. Now, it's true that one may make a deathbed decision for Christ like the thief on the cross next to Christ. However, that assumes the presence of mind, time, and the opportunity to make that decision just before death. Not a given, probably not a good plan. Now, one way to put it is that it is never too late until it is. Perishing is eternal and irreversible. Perishing means suffering the wrath and the torment and the separation from God, and it lasts forever. So one may ask, uh, why do those who do not trust in Jesus why must they perish? Okay, again, we're going over some basics here, but it's important to, to understand this is what John 3.16 is all about. Romans 3 says we've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's not physical death because that's inevitable for all of us. It's spiritual death or perishing. So we've all sinned. However, God is sinless perfection and perfectly just, and justice is getting what is deserved. So by the reality that we all have sinned because of God's perfect righteousness, holiness, and justice, we all deserve to perish. But there's a less obvious but very crucial and deeper biblical reason to accept perishing as necessary. Why is sin so serious to deserve that fate? The answer is that God is the most worthy person in the universe. 
infinite greatness and value. All things are measured by him. He's the beginning, the end of all. All depends upon him for everything. We owe him perfect trust, allegiance, love, worship, honor, respect, and obedience because he made us, he owns us, and he sustains us every single day. Therefore, if we reject him, distrust him, disobey him, neglect him, enjoy anything else other than him, more than him, that is an infinite insult to him. And an infinite insult deserves an infinite punishment. So the more we dwell upon this and understand all this, the more precious John 3.16 becomes. God loved us enough to give us his own son to rescue us from that perishing. Now, is this threatening news helpful or necessary? Now, some, if not many of us, could testify of how the wrath of God that we talked about drove them to the gospel where the love of God relieved our fear. John Newton was in the, in the 1700s a sea captain, a slave trader, and a generally despicable person. Once when he fell overboard, his own crew, who disdained him so much, saved him not with a rope, but with a harpoon in the thigh to drag him back on board. Uh, at one point in his career, a storm nearly shipwrecked him, and, and he faced certain death. Uh, he started to wonder about his need for God. One day when he was back on land, he went out hunting, and he said this, As I climbed up a steep bank, pulling my shotgun after me in a perpendicular direction, it went off so near my face as to burn away a corner of my hat. This he saw as experiences that God was giving him to get his attention, to teach him to fear so that he would look for relief in the only place it could be found in Christ Jesus. And so he penned that great hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now, I think you know, God works in a lot of different ways, and perhaps he didn't work this way in your life, but he does in some to cause a fear that can only be relieved by coming to him. So, if you have believed for this or any other good reason, does that take you or me off the hook? Can we just sit back and relax with no need to know or understand or be able to explain why we have this faith in the Almighty God? Matthew 13 seems to tell us that it is our job to continually witness, to sped, spread gospel seeds. Yeah, some, if not most, of our seeds will fall on the beaten path, will not take root at all. Some may spring up and then wither. But it tells us that some will fall on good soil and produce grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Jesus' final command before his ascension was to make disciples. Now, we're not responsible for the, the success of that effort or the flourishing of that crop. The response of the heart for salvation 
That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We are responsible for sowing the seed, and then if it does spring up, to continue the process of discipleship. So back to perishing. You know, there's at least three big questions of life. From where did I come, my origin? Why am I here, my purpose? And where am I going, my destiny? And I suspect that most people just kind of live life, and they might think about those things, but they never really answer the question. But for those who do, getting back to the basics, the reality of justice and perishing is worthy of consideration, something to be weighed. To mankind, is there any more important question than eternity? Now, in our witness to others, if it is simply one of love, and as Mike says, blue skies and green lights, we may attract some who are dissatisfied with their miserable lives. However, when reality hits with trials and tribulations, as part of God's master plan, that seed may spring up and, however, just wither out of disappointment, if not resentment at what that person perceives as a bait and switch. They were promised a wonderful life with God. Instead, they may have gotten trials and heartache. So the good news that we present must be presented in a way that people understand that God is in control and he'll use us for his plan. Paul reassures that all things will be worked out for his good in Romans 8, 28. And that may include something that maybe you and I would not like for ourselves. Yet, those trials are nothing compared to the torture of an eternity separated from the presence of God. Now, is this realization and deciding to run from hell a sufficient or even an essential motivation to run into the arms of Jesus? Well, I think we can at least say that it God's wrath certainly ought to be, make us think seriously about the options. Because we are to go and make disciples, it is our mission to warn people about what's at stake by rejecting or not making a conscious decision for Christ. No decision is a decision. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay. Let's turn to the positive. The, the solution to rescue us from God's wrath and perishing is the love of God. And so we're going to take a look at four great truths on your handout. The verse begins, for God. Okay? So, the first point is, God exists. Now, this may be a little bit like uh, the great coach of Vince Lombardi, and maybe after a disappointing season when they started to practice in the, in the fall, he gathered his men on the goal line and held up a ball and said, gentlemen, this is a football, okay? And this famous lineman in the back says, coach, not so fast, all right? Great sense of humor. Uh, 
Yeah, it may seem obvious to you folks, but not so to everybody. Everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus did relates to the existence of God. And it was a given for him, obviously, but not everybody. God's existence is actually the primary question underlying all the cultural issues we face today. Those running from any boundaries upon their own desires cannot accept his existence. Of course, when you ask them, most would agree that certain things are wrong, those actions that maybe cause somebody some harm, but you've got to define right and wrong. So, a question you can ask somebody who cannot accept that God exists is, is anything wrong? Anything. And if they, of course, will say, yes, yeah, I think so, then you can ask, who says? Okay. Now, these folks want to call their own shots when it comes to their own actions, and as we'll soon see, this involves a self-defeating contradiction in worldview. However, this confusion is rampant. It's a, it has affected the young in Christian homes and churches today. It might not be your kids, but likely some of your kids' friends. Surveys have shown that the teens in church today are adopting a mishmash of beliefs that fit what sounds good or what they've heard in the echo chamber and the potent indoctrination of social media. Now, they might say that, yeah, I believe in God, but just not the limitations of the Bible. You know, they repeat what they've heard from other voices, that there's really no reason to restrict marriage to one man and one woman, or that... Uh, uh, gender in, is a rigid binary, or a loving God would never allow anybody to go to hell. That's so their grandparents' generation. But the sad reality is that parents are pretty much powerless to stop the constant worldly influence today because it is everywhere. What parents can do is to solidify the faith of their young by giving them or seeing that they get the foundational instructions. Now, cautionary note here. I am not saying that merely passing on Bible doctrine or apologetics will ensure faithful lives by the young when they grow up. Certainly, relationship is essential to parenting, and, and, uh, and we're going to consider not parenting today, but the big rocks of John 3.16, of which parents and churches should incorporate into the training of their young. We also want to consider how we are to be witnesses of the reality of these big rocks to those who are confused. The contemporary problem is simply that the existence of God is no longer generally accepted as it was in the past. We often think that the world fell apart in the 1960s and 70s, but this process has been going on for about 300 years. Over that time, we've seen philosophies of romanticism and existentialism and nihilism chip away at core beliefs. Now, there are many reasons for believing in God. One of the best is, of course, that Jesus taught us that God exists and that he's the central reality of this life. So, you know, in your, in your everyday 
conversations. I like to say as much as I can when I talk to somebody or just pass somebody, you know, and they say something to me, I'd say, well, God bless you, you know, in, in parting or whatever. Well, if somebody were to say, really? You believe in God? Or you somehow got into that conversation, you could say, well, I believe in God because Jesus did. And all that I know of Jesus makes me trust him more than I trust any philosopher, scientist, theologian, or even any friend that I now have. And honestly, that's not a bad response because Jesus has street cred. People, people consider Jesus to be a good guy, generally. And while your response is really a hyper-understatement, it at least allows you to continue the conversation. You could then ask, do you know anybody more qualified, more trustworthy to teach us about the existence of God than Jesus? And it might work. You might get them to talk about it. But if that person is not impressed with Jesus' endorsement of God, you've got to go back and start with the necessity of God before man before you can get to who Jesus really is. Without acceptance of the reality of God, Jesus is just a cool, or I guess today, the word today would be a chill dude. And this is where 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 3 can be very helpful, being ready to give an answer, a defense, sometimes called an apology for anyone who asks you for the reason for your faith with gentleness and respect, must remember that. Now, speaking of faith, Everybody functions on faith or belief. Everybody. Now, as there are many things that we cannot witness, we can't see for ourselves, we cannot measure, such as the origin of the universe, the origin of life, uh, the immaterial, and the spiritual world. All believe certain things about our reality, but some do not believe in a God above mankind. We'll sometimes hear that scientists believe this or that. The fact that some scientists believe some things does not mean that belief is a fact. In fact, it means it is not a fact, it is a belief. The word scientist is usually attached to the word believe to make us think that it's really no common belief. If scientists believe it, it can more easily make the huge leap in logic to conclude that it must be true. In short, everybody believes. Belief is faith, and therefore all have faith in something. From this, if we were to define the word religion as reliance on a certain standard or determiner of truth by faith, every person has a religion. Some are simply not aware of their presuppositions. The easiest way to say and understand this is that the ultimate standard or determiner of truth is either the God above man or it's something related to mankind, like culture, experts, the government, or simply oneself. That person's source of truth is that person's God with a small g. That is what they obey, and it is the core of their personal religion. Now, I have come to understand, and I'm confident, that scientifically, logically, and morally, it is impossible to exist in our world without God above us. 
It took me some measure of study to acquire that confidence and ability to explain in an understandable way to a confused seeker or to a committed atheist. But if God's existence is denied by another, one may need to employ a little logic in asking questions to make that person reconsider he has accepted, what he's accepted as reality. In our high school class, we're now going through a literary debate, a couple of books written by an atheist and a Christian apologist. And the atheist defines morality as questions about suffering and happiness caused by the actions of others on other creatures. And he condemns the Bible for its apparent acceptance of slavery and argues that once a person recognizes that slaves have the capacity for suffering and happiness, it should be obvious that slavery is patently evil. The apologist comes back, first points out that the atheist fails to mention the biblical principle that all people are made in God's image and equal in God's view. However, because the atheist rejects the existence of God, the, the apologist proceeds with logic to ask some revealing questions. How could atheism lead to condemnation of slavery? If suffering is immoral and all creatures have capacity to suffer, why do we allow farm animals to suffer? Moreover, if there is no God, who sets the standard for saying that anything is immoral? So understanding that our existence is impossible without the existence of God above and is critical to fortifying the faith of young and old because they will encounter it as you probably have. When they go off to college or certainly on social media, they're going to hear doubts about the existence of God. Now, we don't have time to address all this today, but let me ask you, if you have young people in your if you can explain the necessity of God to an unbeliever, can your teens? Maybe you can't explain it, so why should you expect your young people to be able to do that? Can you really count can you really expect your young people to stand in the face of atheistic arguments of college professors or just social media and stick with what they learned in Sunday school? So just how can you and they understand the fact that without God above, our existence is impossible? Well, it just takes a little bit of study. There are lots of resources out there, but they must be used. Helping another understand that the Bible matches reality better than any other worldview may be necessary, may be necessary to clear away the brush that obscures the cross of Christ. Science is the friend, not the foe, Christianity. Some scientists will only have faith in naturalistic causes, so they refuse to consider supernatural causes or faith in a creator above man. They have put on their blinders and they're not willing to follow the evidence where it leads. But this is not difficult. We all know that every effect has a cause. Now some scientists, or just about all scientists, universally accept that the universe had a beginning, but they refuse to see that the beginning, which is an effect, requires a cause, 
a beginner, which is outside and above the effect. Some believe that all our existence is material and energy, but for those who remove their blinders know that we have immaterial capacities that make us human, a conscience, a sense of justice, capacity to contemplate spiritual things, and most importantly, to love, all because we were created in God's image. He made us like himself and for himself that he might be known through us. The meaning and purpose of our lives is knowing and showing that God. Second great truth is God has a son. He gave us his only begotten son. This is an important and starting, startling reality. Jesus teaches us that God has an only begotten son. Now think about that. It is crucial for salvation from perishing. When we call the Son of God, the only begotten, Jesus means to distinguish the only begotten from sons that are made or adopted. The angels are called sons of God in Job by virtue of being directly created by God. You and I, Christians, are called sons of God in Romans 8 by virtue of being adopted into his family through being joined by the love of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ is not a son by creation or by adoption, but by begetting, which is simply a human analogy of, for what is beyond our comprehension. It carries a crucial truth. C.S. Lewis said, rabbits beget rabbits, horses beget horses, humans beget humans, not statues or portraits. And God begets God, not humans and not angels. Now, there never was a time, a point in time, when God had not begotten his son, because the begetting of the son is equally eternal with the existence of God the Father. This is the way that God has existed from all eternity without beginning. This is the point of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there is a God, and God has a one and only begotten Son. The third truth we finally got to is God loves. Uh, John says in 1 John 4, God is love. Think about that. Ruminate on that. Putting aside yeah, some churches ignore the balancing truth of God's righteousness, holiness, justice, and hatred of sin. His love remains the most important and welcome essence of the character of our God. Which means for us that giving to and serving others is closer to the essence of God than getting and being served. Why? Because God loves. Now, the phrase is, for God so loved. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that God loved us so much as we might think. You see, God's love is infinite, and that would be a gross understatement. Rather, 
He loves us in a certain way. It might be better understood if we said, God loved us in this way. What way? He loved us such that he gave his only begotten son. And what did he give his son to? Just rejection and death. John 1 says, he came to his own and his own received him not. Instead, they nailed him to a cross. And Jesus said all of this, I glorify you, Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. When the Father gave his only begotten Son, he gave him to die for us. So God's love is of the giving kind, the kind that gives even the closest and most intimate treasure, his only begotten son. Very, very costly gift of love. The meaning of Christmas is the celebration of that love, for God so loved. Finally, God loves an undeserving world. This last great truth offers the solution of this costly love to an undeserving world of sinners. May sound harsh, but we've got to put it all in context. Again, to cover the basics, God is perfect righteousness, holiness, and just. Justice is getting what is deserved. What do we deserve? The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned, fall short, yes. He offers his love to a rebellious lot known as the human race, which by his perfectly pure justice, all deserve eternal death. What could possibly justify us being in his presence for eternity? We know we can never do enough good works to earn salvation. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. But then he says in Romans 3, yet we are justified by his grace that we do not deserve as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance of his justice, he passed over our former sins. So perhaps the greatest paradox in eternity is that Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So when... John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave. It means he gave his one and only begotten son to die for a world of rebels, sinful and perishing without hope. But that free gift of salvation cannot be earned. God loved that world that you and I live in. So just to recap here as we get close to the end, there's a problem that we were all set in motion to perish. That, that means to experience the wrath of God with his fiery torment, separation from his glory, 
it is everlasting and irreversible. However, thank God, there's a solution. He exists. He has a son. He loves us. And he gave his son for an undeserving world. Now, I don't know where anybody's heart is right now. But if your heart is still defiant, if you shrug off God's word and persist in your rejection of Christ's sacrifice as payment for your sins, I think I just did you a great disservice. You see, I just warned you that to flee from the wrath of God into loving arms of God through the door of Jesus Christ is what you need to do. Now, anybody who has not accepted the free gift of salvation will one day stand before the throne of judgment. And a person like that may be tempted to say, but Lord, nobody ever warned me about what was at stake. And you know, the Lord could say, well, you know, I displayed myself to you in the heavens above, in the creation around you, underneath a microscope. And if you didn't see me there, or you blocked me out, from the many times I beckoned you, at least on December the 3rd in 2023 at Lion and Lamb Church in Topeka, Kansas, I appointed you to be there, and I appointed that guy teaching to warn you. You were there and duly warned. A month from now, Lord willing, we will dive a little deeper into the role of faith and the promise of eternal life in this one verse. But let me make one last plea today. You do not have to wait for that message. The great news of John 3.16 is that the love of God rescues us from the wrath of God simply through faith in Christ Jesus. That's why the advent, the advent of baby Jesus is the most consequential appearance in the history of mankind. You may know that you have not made a genuine decision for Christ, or perhaps you have trusted in a prayer you mouthed as a child in the past. Perhaps you're relying upon church membership somewhere, or in your good deeds to earn your way into heaven. None of those pays the price of admission. If you're unsure about where you're going after death, please listen. If you have any doubt, we all deserve eternal death just as much as you. But genuine Christians know that it is Christ's sacrifice alone that pays for our sins through God's mercy. Not giving us what we deserve, and God's grace giving us what we do not deserve, which is eternal life. We urge you to talk to somebody who not only professes to be a Christian, but you genuinely believe is not a hypocrite, and settle the most consequential question of your life in your own heart. Paul gives you this promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the big deal with Advent, about the coming of the baby Jesus who lived a perfect life as, a full, as fully man yet fully God and then was nailed to the cross as payment for your sins and mine. Please ask yourself the question, is there any 
good reason to wait. Okay, rise with me now, and uh, we will recite this thing together. All right, together. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Our first song is new. It's called O Come All You Unfaithful. Um, it is a 